Sarah Gibson, Thomas Kotcheff, welcome to Classical Chop Studio. Yeah, thank you. Good Excited to, have both to be here. Of you. So, I'd like to start with you, the most recent performance, at least the one that I attended, of um, a new piano concerto written for the two of you. And could you talk a little bit about the piece and how it came about? Great. We just premiered a concerto for piano four hands, two toy pianos, and chamber orchestra. And it was written for us by Donald Crockett, who teaches at USC. And so Thomas and I go way back with Don. And so do you. And so do you, exactly. And yeah, he approached us with this idea for this project. And we don't know of any other concerto that's been written for that instrumentation, you know, two toy pianos especially, which is really cool. And even a piano four hands concerto is pretty uncommon yeah, two rare. piano repertoire it tends to be more like a two piano concerto if that is happening um and it was really exciting we played it downtown LA and we played it out in Santa Monica on Mother's Day and seemed to be received really well and it was a really cool piece that had a lot of inside the piano techniques and you know really choreography. Made, yeah a lot yeah. of choreography well, wait tell me about that part so he came to you with a project mm-hmm. and before we talk about actually your ensemble and what Hockett is. Is that something you see changing? It seems like there was a time when you would never contact an artist. And mm. Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, you know, people do reach out to us a lot more often now than, I think actually now that we're playing a lot more concerts, we get reached out to it quite a bit. And, you know, I think that uh, we... Our thing, our Hockett thing, which is, you know, the piano four hands, the to- inside the piano, the we're very open aesthetically to playing whatever, the toy pianos. And I think that we are always interested in seeing new music, being sent music, being asked to do things. And that also makes us, you know, inspired to play those pieces. I love that. Yeah. I love yeah. to know that that's kind of like granting people permission to just do that, to send the email. Because a yeah. lot of it, I think people are really afraid. Yeah, and it's really exciting. I mean... For us as well, because then if they approach us with the project, it also means early on we can kind of help guide some things too. You know, it's like, here's right. what we really right. love doing or like, here's something that we think is really cool and, you know, and there's kind a chance, of give a toolbox. and Right. Yeah. And there's a chance that maybe the project would even be more perfect for you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Than if the other way around. Exactly. Well, especially with Don's Concerto where we workshopped with him quite a bit and, you know, we basically showed him exactly what we do well. It's like here's our, our like physically, what do how do we lock together with four hands that that works really well, and what do I do really well inside the piano, and what does our toy piano you know aesthetic and dynamic work like, and he just wrote right for that, and so on imagine our end, that yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then when we receive the piece though, it feels like it's ours, Absolutely. you know, and like I feel like oh this is exactly what we do, yeah, you know, right. It really felt like a Hockett showcase, which was really fun. Well, it seems like there's like a thousand years of music that was all written like that for specific, yeah. right? For specific right? performers doing what they know how to do, right? And, and then, it's it's cool because it allows us to give the piece a life too, you know. And we're gonna perform it three more times at least, and um. 
you know, I think that's all kind of part of the spirit behind the piece, too, is like we created it together and we get to take it forth. Okay, so tell me just what are a few of those things that you do well in this interview that you would have had you have with the composer? I think that so I always play the bottom half of piano four hands, okay. the lower half, and she plays the top half. Mm-hmm. And we decided that very early on. Um, a lot of piano duels will switch on every piece, but we really wanted to embrace that we were one person, one instrument, and that uh, this instrument works so that I control this half and she controls that half, and together we make one sound. And it doesn't mean that we never play the other side, right? But like, It just means that, that, that we're, we're trying to make one, one human being together, right? and that human being means that I'm on this half of it, and she's on that half. Right. And we cross, and we... Yeah, there and was some reaching oh, over. Yeah. Right we were all over the place, but... <laughs> but physically, I'm always used to my left arm basically touching his right arm. Okay. <laughs> that, like, right. it kind of moves in that sort of puppetry way. <laughs> yeah, and then within that structure, you know, like, I think there comes with... You learn to do like a lot of extended piano techniques where you're reaching in the piano, harmonics, plucking, and you learn how to do that on your half of the piano and how to move in such a way that feels natural, especially when you're trying to interlock together and both move and both choreograph that together. It's a whole other thing. It's like first violin, second violin, in mm, quarter, right? Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There are um, roles. There are absolutely. Roles. Yeah. Uh, and then I think within that, for one step further is, you know, with her playing what would be quote piano one and me playing piano two, I immediately was on the task of going, if there ever was a, a piece for just piano and just inside the piano, meaning she's on the keys, I'm on the strings, that'd be my role. So I got really quite good at reading backwards piano, I call it, where you're on the reverse side <laughs> right. and your down <laughs> goes to the, to the right and up goes to the left. And so then when Don gave me his piece, we're... I was on the reverse side, I'd read the, all the notes backwards. I mean, it's backwards if you think about it that way, but for my way, I think about it now forwards. It's, it's like that scene from Amadeus, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Switch it's it up. Totally yeah. that. And I mean, there's also some fun things too that, and this is, I think another way that Don's piece was really written for us is like at one point I tried to do some of the inside the piano stuff that Thomas was doing and my wingspan was physically not large enough. And like, and you know, he's taller than me, so he could reach lower and different partials that I just wouldn't be able to do physically. Did you have a new uh, found appreciation for the, for what he was doing? Oh, I always have a (laughs) new found appreciation for what he's doing. I should not. It's a constant. He wows me every day. (laughs) It's a good answer. (laughs) And so does she. There you go. Oh, my gosh. Tell me the genesis. Where did the toy pianos actually come from? Yeah, so early on when Thomas and I started playing together, um, we were really trying to carve our own little corner of the new music world. And there's some really stellar piano duos out there. And we were trying to figure out what we could do that could kind of, you know, help us be original. And one of the things that came up was bringing toy pianos very seriously into our literature. So at the beginning of the formation of Hockett, it was, what were you playing? What was the repertoire? It was both of you, four hands. Yeah. So we had, we did some arrangement of some cowl pieces. Um, and we had, so we had a set of cowl. We did Jevsky in the beginning. We did Jevsky, Winsboro, Cotton Mill Blues, those two pianos. Um, there's, and then what we figured out kind of was that we were looking at this venue that had one piano. 
a lot of venues, unless it's a school, just has one piano. So that totally nixes being able to do two piano repertoire. And we were like, well, if we bring in toy pianos, that amplifies our setting. And it also gives a really nice timbral difference to hearing a single piano for an hour. You know, and so then we started looking into toy piano repertoire and there was quite a bit actually because like Phyllis Chen has commissioned a lot and there's a composer, David Smook at Peabody who writes a ton for the toy piano. And pretty soon we had, we each wrote a piece for toy piano. Mm -hmm. I wrote one for piano and toy piano. He wrote one for two toy pianos. And all of a sudden we had a program. And there are actually professional grade Toy pianos, We are right? actually Shunhut artists. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is really funny. And um, yeah, it's the biggest and best of the toy pianos you can get. <laughs> yeah, I think also for us in the beginning and still important to us today is that, you know, Sarah and I are, are composers and we wanted a group where we could play our own music and represent the music we believe in. And so from that very first concert we did, we had our own pieces on there. And I want to say that... On a majority of our concerts, there's at least one piece that we are directly related to, either having written or arranged, is on there. Right. Yeah, it's very common. Yeah. And it's also just more fun to be able, like, in this idea of working with composers, that we say, hey, not just piano, also toy piano, also melodicas, also any... Under the piano. Percussion. percussion. Under the piano. Yeah. I'll dive down there. We've done, oh, I yeah. Pop like balloons <laughs> under there. Do like circle, all sorts of stuff. In. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Would you do, like, hot air balloon attached to the piano and... If the timing is right. Yeah, absolutely is the answer. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the history of four-hand four piano music. I, I was telling Sarah on the phone the other day, I was playing some forehand music with a friend the other day. And it was engineered, I can't remember who it was for, Ray, something that our pinkies kept touching. And it was funny. We kept laughing and then stopped. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, <laughs> this piece is, this is engineered so that you would actually have some kind of physical contact mm. with the person that you're playing with. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, we, I think that, a lot of Forehand's piano pieces, like, for instance, Mozart, were pieces so that he could play with his sister. And then beyond that, I'm sure that there, you know, could have been some flirtatious pieces written where you get to share a piano bench with right. somebody you might be interested in. And that's it's kind of like the idea of the waltz being the first dance where they faced each other. And that that was, like, very... Didn't know that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was, like, very sexy (laughs) that, you know... (laughs) But even so, their faces were kind of next to each other. They were just looking at each other. And I I feel like that could have, like, been kind of a similar way in the music world, too, is just, like, being able to... It's okay if you brush shoulders or it's okay if... Right. You know? So, I mean, I I think it's very... We always talk about how there is an innate choreography to anything we play because of that physical aspect of it. Yeah, you know, I, I I like to think about back in the day, the old days, we'll say. <laughs> say when, the old days. When, yeah. uh, you know, musical training was just built into what it meant to, like, be educated. Like, you, you can play the piano. And also, when there was no CDs, vinyls, or MP3s, when Beethoven's latest symphony came out, you grabbed the forehands piano version and said, hey, let's mm-hmm. go down and read this thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yo, right. Beethoven, brand new symphony. <laughs> and you sit down and you read it. And that's how you experience music of, because you can't replay it otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I like that that just is a nice sentiment. Right. But all these great composers had 
like everyone today, a whole studio of, say, young girls mm-hmm. or women that were not allowed to have professional careers. Mm-hmm. So this is one way to have them in your home. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? To mm-hmm. kind of mix things up to cross social boundaries. Right. So what I think is amazing about Hockett is that you guys have, I mean, you take it as a whole other direction. Because <laughs> at that moment, I w- what I had realized is like, oh, wow, is this an entire genre that's just written for this purpose? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think some of it might be, but I think it's also a very, it's a, like, like what Thomas was saying, I think it's a very compositional tool for a lot of teachers too, is figuring out like the idea, I think that I've, I've played symphonic reductions with my teachers before and talked about orchestration, both in composition lessons and in piano lessons and voicing. And those are the strings down there. And this is the brass and like, and that you can't really get that full orchestral sound or or you can at least get a different orchestral sound if there's 20 fingers at the keys. Um, So I think it can be a really interesting teaching tool that maybe like if you're talking about the composers trying to get people to you know come into their house their students to play these pieces with them there is kind of like potentially a selfish side of it of like i need to hear what this sounds like and i can't do it without you (laughs) yeah (laughs) but you know to to speak on what you just mentioned i think when composers ask us about like just the base fact or like the basic tidbit of how to write for piano four hands Mm -hmm. is you need to understand that this is the most intimate of ensembles and it's 100% physical like everything we do you have to consider how we move and how we do it together Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's literally choreographed yeah oh yeah I mean that I would say I mean that's a lot of our rehearsals especially the first few rehearsals of a new piece is where's your arm where is my leg where when are you standing up when am I sitting down Mm -hmm. like all of that because otherwise it's just it will literally look and feel clunky if you don't dance mm-hmm. absolutely <laughs> and if that aspect isn't rehearsed exactly exactly, as, exactly. A, as if it's a dance and there's and there's also just things that if, you know i mean just even just little techniques that we just really have to be careful timing and everything you know and we have lots of pieces that it can be very cool visually because literally our arms will be kind of pretzeled and a lot of times audiences afterwards will be like, I didn't even know whose hand was whose. Like, that was so pretzels, cool. Pretzels, pretzel, baby. Yeah, exactly. Sponsorship. Yeah. Do you like pretzels? Come see Hockett. <laughs> that would be a great idea. It yeah. really would. Salted with mustard. Pretzels at intermission. Nacho cheese Come on. Oh, yeah, cheese dip. Yeah, cinnamon sugar. Well, I wonder, though, in the end, if this could bring, I mean, everyone still, or a lot of people still have pianos in their homes. I wonder if this kind of renaissance with piano forehand. Bring it back. Yeah. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know? Because also, whatever, luring people into your home aside. <laughs> or have an excuse to play with your attractive right. student. The fact of the matter was is that back then, if you wanted to hear something, you had to play it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And now we're also, I mean, I, you know, this phone sitting right here, we could queue up, what, thousand years right. of music or more? Right. So maybe this will inspire people, especially students, that no, don't just turn your phone on. Or if the repertoire is so obscure, mm-hmm. please <laughs> have at it. Right, right. I think that one thing that's, been fun for us too is that whenever we've gotten a new piece we try really hard even if the composer doesn't live nearby to send them recordings or to do like a Skype thing with them or something and that's where the technology really helps us is we can be like listen to this this is what we just did you know and you send it off and you know that can be a way to make it personal but also use the technology right yeah I wanted to talk about that too that's on my list Mm -hmm. um just digital media. So can you talk a little bit about how you're integrating digital media into Yeah, I mean, works? what do you mean into the works? 
Or are you, you Multi- have, multimedia? Yeah, I guess multimedia. <laughs> My favorite word. You know, this is a little side note here that we had to record a video once <laughs> where I had to say the word multimedia and multidisciplinary. Those two oh, phrases. And I must right have done. Back to back. Oh, God. There were spit takes. There was like, multimadi, multimadi. Like, could not, multi-media. could not say those words correctly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we as Hockett have always been so open to if a composer says to us, or an artist, we want to try doing this, and we have this idea, and we're always like, great. Hot air balloon? Yeah. Done. Hot air balloon, light it up, and we're going up. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> Send me to the moon and back. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we did a concert this past season that was all electronics. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing that, a concert like that at UT Austin in the fall. Electronics uh, and piano. Electronics and piano, piano, sorry, yes. Normal right. thing. Um, and we have a piece commissioned from Nina Young that involved video projection that was changing via the sound waves of the live toy pianos. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that for us, we're just open to like cool ideas. And, just open. And, and, we're, and yeah. we, we want to also experience those things too. Just like the audience, we hope to want to experience it. We want to we be experienced in the creation of this cool thing. And now yeah. are the things you're thinking of just between the two of you, where you're thinking it would be great to or to expand the ensemble in that direction? Yeah, I mean, one thing we've been talking about lately is we'd love to do something with dancers. Um, and we're also, and that would be really exciting for us. Um, cause that also opens up to a whole other audience that, you know, it's a different audience that we haven't played for before that could be really cool. And that's also part of a tradition of you have a pianist with a dance company doing an orchestral reduction, that sort of thing. There's a whole, you know, oh, cycle wow, of what, and so, yeah, we've got this uh, idea about what we would want to do with that. And, um, we also just wrote a, or not wrote, we played a piece that's going to eventually have a virtual reality oh, right. um, video with it that, like, a 3D virtual by reality. By Brian Coster's. By Brian Coster's. Nice. Yes. Um, we've played the piece already, and it's cool because the piece stands alone, but then there's going to be this ex- extra video that goes with it. That the entire audience will have exactly. Uh, I, well, I think it's a, it's a VR experience, so you can just download it to your own VR device if you oh, wanted to. Right. Mm. And our music is going to exist in the background, but the piece also stands alone as a piece of music. Right. So so that's really cool. And like that, I mean, gosh, Brian brought in, it's the biggest setup we've ever had. It was a, a um, Moog synthesizer. Moog Sub 37, modular synthesizer. Uh, bells. Toy piano, bells, crotale, uh, this little, what was that? Organelle synthesizer. Organelle and a little music box. Music box, um, harmonics in the piano. I mean, like, we we sh- we told Brian all of our tricks, and he was like, "Great, I'm doing them all." Yeah, literally <laughs> checked every box and then added a couple. <laughs> and but to his credit, he managed to make the choreography work really well, mm-hmm. so it doesn't ever feel like we're just like you know a clown pulling these out of our our chest of toys. Right, we're just like are actually moving very fluidly through this ensemble, making all these very integrated sounds as a unit. Yeah, let's take a quick break. This episode of Classical Chops is sponsored by the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. Committed to making great music personal, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra has concerts for everyone. From Baroque music to full, lush orchestral concerts and contemporary music, see what's playing at laco.org. Enjoy 10% off your ticket order using the code CLASSICALCHOPS. I was reading... um liner notes to Mitsuko Uchida's mm. Schumann album. And even back then, Schumann was being criticized for mm. his works as being 
original for the sake of being original. I thought, wow. What? Really? Yeah. So even the Bach was criticized. Too much counterpoint. Yeah, it's true. Slow down, boy. Oh, yeah. That's true. Nazi, like, Nazi. So Palestrina. Too much counterpoint. Yep. Well, mm-hmm. they told him to slow down. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that's got to just come off the table. Right, right. And if composers are feeling that way, just... Oh, yeah, I'm the opposite of original. I'm so unoriginal, <laughs> but actually, it's original. Which then I'm unoriginal. came back around. Yeah. To right, boring. exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. I would never. <laughs> I really wanted to talk about Remember Me. Mm. Oh, yeah. I watched that. Well, I've watched it multiple times, but I watched it again this morning. It's cool. So good. It's a yeah. really cool video and piece. It's a really cool piece. Yeah, so tell me, uh, but I can't pronounce it. What, it's Holloway what? Aaron Holloway Nahum. YouTube is a great platform, and I was on today listening to a great piece, Remember Me, by Aaron Holloway Nahum. Can you guys tell me about this piece? Because the video yeah. is unbelievable, and the sound world well, is that's Aaron for you. Yeah, really uh, is. Aaron is the conductor of the Riot Ensemble, uh, which, is in the, which is London, and he's just a terrific composer. And I first met him at Aspen Music Festival 2014. That sounds about right. The, mm. Yeah. And at that point, Hawkett had been running for a season or two. It was the end of our, no, end of our first full season. And I said, hey, you know, I really, I liked him as a human being, which is really important. For, and his music. Yeah. But then also I liked his music. And I said, would you be interested in doing a project with us? And just the way Aaron's mind works, he's like, I want to make it over 30 minutes and make this huge variations on uh, Dido and Aeneas. <laughs> Great. And I was like... Right. You know, <laughs> like, you know, I, I mean, again, like, he has such strong convictions about this idea. And we're like, if you do it, you know, if you build it, we will come. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. And I mean, we didn't, yeah, we just let him do whatever he wanted to do. Yeah. And we're so lucky that he also just was willing to give us this piece. And then the moment we got the piece, we, we played it for, actually, it was we start, 18 months we, we rehearsed it because it was in, it's in four so parts. Hard. And yeah, it took us that long to learn it. But we, we realized very quickly that this piece we have to record a video of because it's so involved. The second movement is exclusively inside the piano with mallets and plucking. Vibrators. A vibrator. Um, uh, what else is in there? Paper clips. Paper clips. Guitar picks. Guitar picks. Um, harmonics. Harmonics, yeah. All and, sorts of stuff. And then, oh yeah, and then a Super Bowl mallet on oh, the yeah. lid. And I mean, there's just like, he came with all these incredible techniques that we the piece had to live in a way you could see how we're doing it. There was a beautiful fluttering, too, on the toy pianos. What was Oh, that? yeah, oh, yes. that was just um, touch. It's kind of like a Lachenmann thing that you just kind of glide the backs of your hands over the keys without making a sound. And it would just go... It and it's beautiful. a really great percussive effect. And, you know, I mean... It was really cool, too, because he actually... I had never met him when he was writing us this piece. He was just buddies with Thomas. And looking back... I think it's probably a little bit of both that he knew you well enough to know Thomas well enough to know what sort of cool things he could do to push us. But I also think that he pushed us in a way that that's kind of become an iconic, excuse me, iconified piece for us that it represents us so well when we were still early and young, you know, in what we were doing. Yeah. And, and now... because of that? Because he pushed... Well, I, th- I, I mean, think, it could I th- be. I think he embraced, like, all aspects of what we could do. The toy right. piano thing, the piano toy piano thing, the into the piano thing. Melodicas. The piano for ends. Like, he just, mel- we, yeah. he just really went for it. And then, you know, I think we just, we just found that it, was, it spoke to us. 
And now it is very often that a composer comes to us and says, like, what sort of inside of the uh, piano techniques do you do? And we say, listen to this second movement. <laughs> Here's that video. Watch the video. This is how they he did this. And we can do all of that and more if yeah, you want. Yeah, that and but George like, Crumb again. That's the game. Yeah, exactly. And, like, that's become so useful for us, too. Yeah. Um, if I can go back about the um, that brushing technique. Yeah. So we got the score from Aaron. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and <laughs> it's just in the score, like, I mean— Probably a very poetic version, but it was like, you know, gently caressing the keys to create a like a flutter Fluttering. or whispering something. Like and yeah. we used to this and we're like, huh? Like And also the toy piano, I mean it's like sometimes you blow on it and the key will make a sound. Yeah. Like there's no action. Yeah. You know, and so I, we, we were like, this doesn't make any I don't know what this means. So we emailed him like, hey Aaron, you know, what does it mean on the on, on measure of 30? And he sends back a video <laughs> and he's holding and is under his arm a giant fan, mm-hmm. uh, and he's and with the, with a grate over it, and he goes, "All I can tell you is the sound I want sounds kind of like this." And he strums the fan like stroking it. Like, yeah, stroking. it's a gentle <laughs> stroke. And I was like, "Got it." <laughs> and he goes, "And I hope you save this video for posterity or something like that." <laughs> well, tell me about notation then, with mm. commissioning all of these works. How is that changing from composer to composer? Um, well, you know, it's really interesting because there are definitely techniques that composers who have written for us have created that we try to figure out something all together. But then there are also a lot of techniques that because of George Crumb, who's the master of inside the piano techniques and notation and notation notation. that we say, go to celestial mechanics, macrocosmos volume four. And write it the way he did it. That's been done before. And I think that that's something, and it's something that I think is really interesting for us as pianist composers is it really shows how much score studying is important because the amount of times that we've gotten a piece that uses something, even if it's in a new way, but something that we've done before, a harmonic, love harmonics. They sound amazing. They're great. Awesome. But if it's written not the way Crumb did it, it takes us about 10, 15 minutes, then we go, oh, this is just that. They really need to rewrite this. You know, and it wastes so much time if right, it's not written right. how Crumb kind of solidified it. Yeah. I mean, I always email composers, you know, WWGCD, what would George Crumb do? You know? <laughs> and that is always the answer. It's true. And But I guess the reality is, is, you know, with modern notation, there is an agreed upon language we're using now. Mm-hmm. And I feel a composer who studied can understand the agreed-upon language, and that language is like, here's how you draw. I mean, for example, if the note is the white note in the middle of the piano that we call C, don't put B sharp because we agreed that's actually a C. Right. And the same thing is for, like, a plucked note, a harmonic, a muted note. There's a way we write that now. Mm-hmm. You're not going to invent something that's going to do something fresh. Does that make sense? Right. right. It's fussy or... Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's so important. Like, I mean, there's even... I, I've been playing a couple pieces lately that... We'll talk about a glissando, and for me, this is something like on the strings or something, and it'll say, move up the strings. And the direction (laughs) of up to me is very different from across. Across, Mm -hmm. And it's like that's even just talking to a pianist. Like, you know, maybe you move up the keyboard, but if you're on the strings, it just feels weird to say up instead of across. You know? Well, I think where George Crumb went right, and obviously he's a— a pianist and plays and does these things is he really understands that a pianist wants to see that one step is right hand, one step is left hand. Mm-hmm. So even when there's like harmonics was resultant sound, we're still showing what our hands do. 
Now, the common mistake we see so often is we're shown the result. Right. You're not shown what our hands do. It's As kinda, a string player, yeah, you, I'm sure yeah, you do the exact same thing. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to see your results. You want to see what you're actually doing. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so we always say that that, that exact line. It's, it's an, our harmonics are the same as viola harmonics. I wonder if there'll be like a Hockett treatise on extended time. One day, one day. There We've talked about this, doing yeah, like a YouTube video series yeah. or something where it's like, here's how you do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I guess the problem is, is, is George Crumb, it would be explaining George Crumb to everyone, like, here's how George Crumb did it and here's how it sounds like. You know what I mean? Like, you we're pushing, yeah, we're pushing the repertoire so quickly that I have a feeling that that will even, you mm-hmm. know, you're mm-hmm. going to reach a point where composers are going to even move past that. Yeah. Right? Right. It's true. Yeah. Cool. Side project. <laughs> I wanted to, well, I wanted to talk about your pieces too, like Outsider and Death Hawk mm-hmm. and Roll. And then I want to talk about the business of putting together an ensemble. Great. And then the and then the kids. And then we're done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hockets Rockets? Hockets oh. Rockets. <laughs> oh, the Hockets Heads? Hockets. <laughs> yeah, Hockets. No, and then I want to talk about the composition program. Yes, oh, great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> das Kinta. Yes. <laughs> the Kinder. The Wunder yeah. Kinta so, of LA. Okay, so Sarah, tell me about your piece, Outsider. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I wanted to write a piece for us for two pianos, and we were doing a concert uh, on the Piano Sphere series in LA, which is probably the most innovative piano series out there, definitely. Longest standing for sure. Yeah. Longest standing of innovation. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, we were so excited to have this platform to be able to, you know, do a concert here. And we really wanted to make the show us. And so we had always wanted to do this George Crumb Celestial Mechanics piece. And then we were like, okay, well, we need to each write a piece for this concert so that it's really us too. And... um, I had read a short story by H.P. Lovecraft called The Outsider. And so this piece was kind of in response to that. And another thing that we had been talking about a lot is just that we wanted to make sure that we were showcasing everything that we can do. And so we also play the melodicas. So I wrote in this piece a large two melodica kind of antiphonal cadenza And um, we had a blast, I think, playing that. And then the whole, but a lot of the piece for me, it was really fun because I was never an improviser, really. And through various pieces that Thomas and I have played together, also just one thing that Thomas and I do in rehearsals is we'll practice a lot. We'll be really focused. Then we need a break. And often in those breaks, we improvise something just for fun, whether it's a Disney tune or something stupid or whatever. And it really changed how I was kind of composing that piece. And I would bring in just like a little morsel, like maybe 20 bars or something. And I'd be like, all right, Thomas, for the next five, three minutes, let's improvise on this little morsel. And we just kind of like respond to each other and play iterations of like what I've written. Response. Yeah. And, or even just not, you know, playing on top of each other, whatever, just so that I could be like, okay, this is a minute. I want to see what this feels like if we do this for three minutes and we do it. And then we'd be like, okay. And I'd be like, great. That was something. Then I'd go home and write, you know, whatever I could remember or whatever I liked that maybe we did. And same thing with the melodicas. I mean, Thomas was critical and helping me with like, just cause I kind of, he really takes the cadenza in that section. So we're just like vamping up, you know, what melodicas can do, how you could push it. Um, it was really fun. And so that huge 
improvisational aspect of it really affected the piece. And it just wouldn't have been the same if I had not had him, you know, every few days in the writing process of me being like, I have a new thing. Let's try it. You know, so that was really fun. And trying it, I think, is something that's been lost lately. Mm. With the digital engagement. Absolutely. That one has intent, and then there's a physical action that attaches that intent to the tone. Mm-hmm. And then you mess around with it. Absolutely. And you're exactly right. I mean, the, you know, MIDI is not really trying it. Death <laughs> to know? MIDI. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I could have, I mean, the piece would have been utterly different, and I don't think it would have been anything if I had just put it straight into MIDI. Yeah, I think that for, for Sarah and I, when writing for ourselves, or for anyone, writing for anyone, and I can speak for her as well, that we're really inspired by the players. And so when we're writing for ourselves, we are both trying to capture who we are. And I know that the result we want to get is pieces that we feel that is truly Hockett and that only Hockett could do, at least in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so for her, the two melodicas, that felt like it was really us. Mm -hmm. And like no one else is doing this thing and that's something we, we do. And for me and my piece, I wanted there to be um, an extended um, solo that required drumming on the toy piano. And I have some lessons in drumming. Um, I have a terrific drum teacher in L.A., Chris Preece. <laughs> um, so, wait, Thomas, your piece, Death, Hawken, and Oh, that, that one. Sorry, that's another one. Oh, um, that was I'm, I'm speaking of, he's called Waga Na Fatagen. Oh. Say that again. Yeah, there was <laughs> Wa- I saw Fatagen. that one. And yeah. Was like, yeah. <laughs> um, but I wanted a piece that, I was like, okay, so one piano part can be normal, like, playing, more or less, with a lot of prepared stuff in, in the piano. The other piano part is going to require drumming. And I felt like that was something that really Hockett could do, and that would be unique to us. For instance, I have zero drumming skills, so I cannot play Thomas's part. <laughs> you know, only he can. <laughs> yeah, and so, and then, yeah, and then, then when we play it, though, I, I, I feel empowered by playing it because it feels like, yeah, this is, like, who we are, and this is, like, our music. Yeah. You know? And it came kind of from, from mm. the Hockett laboratory. Yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of, it's like a jam band sort of thing. You know, it, like, feels like you're, like, the Almond Brothers. Like, oh, man, try this yeah. lick. Well, you, you know, know? Death, Hockett, and Roll, the other piece that you mentioned, which is for two toy pianos. So Death, Hockett, and Roll, uh, we were rehearsing it and we, we, at this point I played the piece about three times in concert already and we were actually at the sound check for the fourth concert <laughs> and at one moment in the piece I don't know what came over Sarah but she just started like she just went for a fermata on this big like climactic moment she's like she said, we started holding on and I was like and I was like wait for it and I was like yeah go oh, yeah, it was a pause it was yeah, the pause, yeah, oh, pause. pause. Yeah. I was like stop did we add the fermata on the bar before though I can't remember I can't remember okay. anyways she yeah so, she so wait just, she was in the middle of pushing the toy piano it was it was either she called yeah. a fermata audible or we just did it and then she and then it was Sarah's idea, though. One I of just two went, things. I was like, I, I, I was like, watch me, stop, you know, and like. I mean, and then I was like, I, I mean, honestly, I, I stayed in ovation. I, 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 was, like, <laughs> I was like, that's better. That, that's, that's really that, better. That's the piece. I mean, that, that's what it's about, that very moment. And, you know, and that became part of the piece permanently for like the next 20 performances of it, you know. And then we changed it like three other times, and then we changed, too. And then, then we came back to it Fremont a year later. always stays. Yeah, the Fremont stays. And then a year later, we came back to the piece. And I was like, let's just change the ending. This should be right the ending. He's like, ending. I'm getting bored. We played this too many times. We need to do something new. And we just rewrote the ending together. And it was great. You know, yeah. and that's like kind of the joy of actually like, you know, live music is not permanent. It's not the CD. It's not a recording. It's like, it's ever changing. And when we play a piece, you know, 20 times, I love how it can change. Mm-hmm. That was poetry. That I was know, like, it really was. That's why you think you get that? That's poetry. <laughs> yeah, that better have been recorded. I know. 
I should let me tell you actually. So we did the um, Avalok Farms music residency or um, yeah residency yeah. in New Hampshire, and we had this. Uh, it's this great thing. You should do it. It's amazing. It, the setup is incredible. You got to go. Tell me about the. Mm-hmm. Tell me about. So it's the. It's like a little. You can apply as a group or as composers or both um, to go to this residency in New Hampshire. It's in this beautiful big green field. There's a gorgeous kind of central house. And then there's these little condo type homes around and they set you up. It's incredible accommodations. There's literally like a chef that prepares food for everybody like every day that is incredible. They give you a studio. They give you a studio with a Steinway and it's like a big studio and you get it, you know, as I mean, it's yours for however long you're there. It's the most relaxing way I have ever gotten the most work done we've ever gotten done in our lives. It's true. Okay, so wait, tell um, me about the creative process in a place like this. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> well we practice our ass off. <laughs> yeah, we really do. We work really hard. Yeah, we work really hard. Um, yeah. It's, again, I mean, I do think it's, you know, classic thing for us is work hard, play hard. Right. <laughs> and we work really, really hard, and then we take really good breaks. But, um, yeah, the so we would just get up. Basically, it'd be like you'd have the studio for an hour or two in the morning to practice yourself. I'd practice a couple hours after that, break for lunch, and then afterwards we'd have like four or five hours of just shedding whatever we were working on that day. Um, most of the time we've gone with pieces that were just written for us and we're working with the other composers at the festival. So creative flow must have been an entirely different situation than L.A. with the distraction. Absolutely. And like, and literally it didn't feel overwhelming. It it just felt... Oh, were you afraid that you would freak out by not having been so connected? Well, I don't know. It was interesting because we actually, we had just done Bang on a Can for a month before that. And it kind of, I think, leaving Bang on a Can, you know, it was so rewarding and so exhausting. And we're driving there, and we get there, and we're like, okay, now another solid week of work. But after Avalok, I felt rejuvenated, you know, and it, it was just very fulfilling that way, I think. Um, but what I was going to say is there was one point where I was practicing, and Thomas <laughs> was oh, like... No. Being a crazy person and like doing dance moves behind me and like, you know, making noises and all this stuff. Acting normal, basically. Absolutely acting normal. And I'm just playing. And then I get to a moment where I stop and I kind of look at him. He goes, did you not see anything I was just doing? And I was like, no. I was practicing. He was like, I do this all the time. You don't even know I do it anymore. And I was like, no, no idea. I have no idea what you're just doing. It's like a dull hum now in the back of the room. (laughs) I was just acting like a crazy person. And I was like, didn't bother me. <laughs> I think that's what parents do with five-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. exactly. It. <laughs> that's a Hawkin model. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me a little bit about the business aspects of, say, a young ensemble wants to get together. I mean, this doesn't just happen. So you right. have to put a lot of work into that aspect of it. Can you talk a little bit about that and challenges and funding and all that kind of not fun stuff, I guess? Yeah, you know, I think that from the very beginning... At least when we're when we're asked by college lectures and college talkbacks about starting a, a group, the very beginning has to be one: you love the people you play with, and that you also agree upon what your goals are. And that could be what your goal is on on a phrase, could be what your goal is with the concert, or your goal with your five year plan. And if you can't agree or find ways of agreeing upon what your goals will be on how to execute a phrase, you'll never be happy a, a year down the road, two years right. or, or so on. 
And so Sarah and I, from the very beginning, we both shared a deep passion for chamber music. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we were friends from the beginning. And we, if we don't always agree, we find ways of agreeing as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. I think that's where, and that's where it starts. Right. And I think, you know, you put it one way when we were talking to some students one time that I thought was really great, where he was like, you know, you don't have, when you're starting a group, you don't have to say, everybody doesn't have to say, I want to be Eighth Blackbird or something like that. You can say, we agree that we want to do one concert a year and we want to do it the best we can and we want to do it here and we'll work for six months at each year, hardcore up and just give a killer concert, you know, and that's a great thing. If you agree on that with somebody, you're going to do it and that'll work. You know, we have our own plans, but it's it kind of like proof of concept. That's very Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we started there, and you know we're at USC, and we were both doing well at USC as students. And I think that we were in that bubble of USC. I think we were thriving. Mm-hmm. And then our first year going professional, it was a very rude awakening, and that no one really cared what you're up to in your school. <laughs> and so we figured out very quickly that. You know, in order to make a bigger mark outside your bubble, is you have to you have to reach people. So our first goal was to get videos of us playing into the world and recordings. So that first season professional professional season, we made sure that everything we played was recorded, and if we liked it, we put it out. Mm-hmm. And also, we funded our own concerts mm-hmm. the first year. We we right. put money down so we can make a good concert with good video and good audio. And once that was in the world, things started changing a little bit towards our direction, meaning that. If we emailed someone on a cold email, a venue, they could at least vet us. They could say, oh, I've seen that video of you guys playing, or I can check that video out. And then that got the ball rolling in the right direction. And then we started playing more and commissioning more and then kept playing. But the bottom line is, you know, starting Hockett was never about money. And, you know, it's, this is modern music. It's about passion. And it's about wanting to create and to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that... Well, yeah, I don't think I can say it better. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, that's that. Um, okay, so what I want to talk about is the Ellie Phil, Nancy, and Barry Sa- uh, Sanders Composition Fellowship Program, where you are both teacher mentors. So many young composers. Yeah. Somehow come to all of us for advice. And I it's know. like, what? And you teach a lot of those students, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And this program's amazing because there's not really many places for them to go. Right. I mean, I, I feel like every week. I think about if I had had access to a program like this when oh. I was 15, I just can't even understand what would have been going on in my brain. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> I just I would have been so excited. <laughs> so for the young composers that could be listening to this, mm-hmm. um, tell us what, what the program's about and and maybe some advice for those students. Yeah. So the program was founded by Steve Stuckey. And um, Steve, obviously an incredible unfortunately recently lost um, force in not only the L.A. music scene, but just the new music scene across the world, really. And he started thinking about how, as a young composer, it's such a solitary act. As a composer, period, it can be a solitary act. And, you know, if you're 15 and you want to be in a youth orchestra, you instantly meet 20 violinists that also play violin or something like that. And if you're a young composer in high school, it's much more desolate. Right, right. And so he wanted to start this program to become a community for, to build a community for young composers. And 
that, you know, kids started coming out of the woodworks, you know, and it's amazing how many students are interested in composing. They're coming out of, they're literally coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. And they don't, it's almost like, it's one of those things where it's, you give them the opportunity and they show interest and then they grow. And it's a lot of kids might not know what composing is or that they're doing it. Many parents definitely don't know. They just got their kid piano lessons or something like that. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, writing music is a thing. I can do that. I like that. Yeah, I want to hear a violin play this or something along those lines. So basically this program, um, it meets like about on the weekends three times a month. And um, it is a program that is building orchestral composers, really. It's meant to give them the forces by which to learn orchestration and instrumentation and how to write for various chamber ensembles and then eventually hopefully they're in the program long enough writing for the actual LA Philharmonic and I mean we just talk a lot I think about giving them as many tools for their toolbox as they can have you know do you want to add anything to that yeah you know I mean when I was in high school like you guys I'm sure there was maybe there was for in Atlanta I don't know there was nothing like this in, when I was in high school oh no nothing and for that reason, I didn't start writing till I was 18 years old. I was late to the game. Um, they call me the Tchaikovsky <laughs> of the modern era. Right. You know? <laughs> he was 21, right? Oh, my God. I don't so know. So I'm a young Tchaikovsky. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Keep telling yourself that. Keep <laughs> dancing. <laughs> um, but I just think about if I had a chance just to try stuff out as a high schooler, I would have just been like, oh my God. just gone for it and like been you know, in, so enthused by it, you know? Well, and I mean, it's also amazing. I mean, speaking of this idea of MIDI is the amount of trouble that these young kids get themselves <laughs> into oh, yeah. with MIDI is remarkable. And the instant that we have a flutist come in, I can tell these students eight times, that's not going to sound the way you think it is. And they're like, okay. I'm like, great, that's not that, going to do that. That means like, change okay. it. Right. And then the flutist comes <laughs> in and they play it. And I, the amount of times I've had a student turn around to me and go, you were. <laughs> and I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they have to hear it and they, they have, have to, to physically it. see it and hear it and process it. I still need it. to hear it. I know. And I mean, it's, I learn, I, I say all the time, I literally learn as much as these students do. Because no matter how many times I've heard a flute demonstration, I remember something or I'm reminded of something or learn something new. Exactly. They ask yeah. you a question, you're like, we'll find out together. Exactly. <laughs> so for the high school student that's sitting out there, doesn't know where to turn. I've noticed a lot of times they'll go to their maybe AP theory teacher. Right, and absolutely. Not to demean that at all, but that's not necessarily the same thing. Right. And they're getting some kind of different advice. And then, oh, I'm going to apply to USC. And right. Like, oh. Yeah. you just took the AP exam like that's yeah four-part writing isn't right <laughs> like, right so what, what would you say to these students like contact somebody right you know I think two things that I think I've seen that help these students the most and that also even for me myself helped me the most as a young composer is writing for friends is that you instantly like take away the computer in a way. And you just say, okay, just like what Thomas and I are doing now. You know, I'll say, I have a friend that plays viola. I'm going to write a solo viola piece and learn something about viola. And then that also makes it more fun because you're collaborating. Exactly. Gets you out of the, the room by yourself. And you're also actually learning rather than just a computer can play anything. Um, and 
you're making it physical. And so I think that's really important. The other thing is that I think summer programs can be really useful for young composers, whether it's a one-week festival that a small music school in whatever city you live in holds, or if it's Brevard or something like that. You know, I would say even if you're going to Brevard as a oboist, ask if you can sit in on a couple of the composition classes, you know, and see if you can learn something from there. I mean, that's where I met a lot of teachers that I've studied with in the past was at summer festivals. And the level you're looking at for the Philharmonic program is what? All over the place, really. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I think we have, we just broadened the program. Um, we have three different classes now. Um, and I think the thing we look for the most, and Thomas, jump in on this if you want to, is just a creative voice and that we can see excitement and some sort of sparkly interest in what they're showing us. Um, and we're excited to invest in that, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not, you don't have to come in with a symphony, you know, as a matter of fact, that scares me sometimes. Right. It's like, oh, hold on, pull it back, symphony. pull it back, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. A really awesome, you know, duo. Oh yeah. Looks great. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that with, any young composer that inside of them is going to be a young artist and a or or a young musician mm-hmm. and when i'm working with anyone i can immediately tell whether they just have that heart you mm-hmm. know and it's not right. about and maybe they've only written like a, a one minute piece that's for solo instrument their instrument but i can tell that there's something in the, inside of them that's like i i have something that i want to say yeah exactly right. yeah. And Brett, one thing that I've seen you do with students that I also think is so important for young kids is you make sure that your students listen to pieces and look at the scores. And I think that that is so important, you know, and it also opens them up to different sound worlds. Right. Yeah. You know? I, the point of that is just teaching them that to, re, you know, I teach them that re, so that they can remove me yeah. from the equation. And, it's like, <laughs> and there's no question you're ever going to have. It's not in the repertoire. Right. Literally. Right. It's true. Especially for a high school kid. So Sarah Gibson, Thomas Kotchev, thank you so much. Oh, thanks Our for pleasure. having us. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening.